We are working our way through the book of Acts, and we've come this morning to Acts chapter 8. So let me encourage you to turn to Acts 8, and we'll focus our attention this morning on verses 1 through 4. As we have been approaching the 6th, 7th, and 8th chapters of this book of Acts, approximately three years have gone by since the death and burial and resurrection and ascension of our Lord Jesus. And in most every way that we can imagine, those have been delightful years, beginning, of course, with the marvelous outpouring of the Spirit at Pentecost. These have been years in Jerusalem marked by a spirit of unity in the church. They were all with one accord, we read. Marked by a spirit of prayer, too, corporate prayer. They lifted their voices to God with one accord. And also years marked by a spirit of generosity among the saints, too, such that there was not a needy person among them. And, of course, during this time, the church has grown spectacularly as well. At the beginning... We read that the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. And even when we arrive in chapter 6, we are still reading that the number of disciples continue to increase greatly in Jerusalem. So these have been marvelous days, as we have noted several times along the way. And yet these golden days, these three years of blessing in Jerusalem have not been without their difficulties either. Twice we've seen the apostles arrested and questioned and reprimanded for ministering and teaching in Jesus' name. And that's always the rub, we've said, both then and now. Not just teaching or religion or morality or a generic God, but our specific attachment to Jesus and our specific preaching in his name. Well, the apostles have twice found themselves in hot water because of that name, and on the second such occasion, the authorities actually flogged them as a kind of warning to stop preaching about this Jesus. And these arrests and this flogging were surely trying matters, matters for genuine and serious concern among God's people. And yet, through the first five and a half chapters of Acts, through the first three years or so in the life of the church at Jerusalem, the opposition to the gospel and to the church seems primarily, if not solely, to have been directed at the apostles. From what we are told, it seems that none of the rest of the congregation has suffered significantly yet. And even though arrest and flogging are much harsher than anything we have known, no one has been killed yet for their faith in Jesus, which is perhaps a little bit surprising given what happened just three years earlier to their master, Jesus. So the suffering of the church to this point, as we reach Acts 6, 7, and 8, has been sporadic, and it's been relatively minor. The apostles have suffered on a couple of occasions, but not the lay people, and no one has yet been martyred for the faith. But all of that changes and changes rapidly when we get to Acts 6 and 7 and 8. Because, as we saw on Wednesday night, Stephen, a deacon in the church, 
is now hauled before the authorities in chapter 6. And in spite of a face like the face of an angel, in spite of an able defense and a convicting sermon that he preached in chapter 7, maybe partly because of that convicting sermon, the crowd rushes upon him like wild dogs and begins throwing heavy stones at him, breaking and bruising his body, splattering his blood on the ground. And a young man named Saul is standing there watching over the coats of those who are doing these things. And then we read, beginning in chapter 7, verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having said this, he fell asleep. Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And on that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, Those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Father, as we turn to this passage, this persecution against your people, help us to be sober and help us to be encouraged. Speak to us about the power of your word and your ability to sustain your people. In the midst of trial, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. It's a poignant scene when Stephen is buried there in verse 2. The first Christian martyr. And surely those who buried him did not grieve as do those who have no hope. They knew that Stephen, though absent from the body, was at home with the Lord. And yet they still grieved at all that had happened to him. Just as we ought to grieve when we read the stories of martyrs today. We ought to grieve the way they suffer. Grieve the loss to the church. Grieve for parents and spouses and children who are left behind. In some cases destitute because the main breadwinner in the family has been cut down. And so the believers at Jerusalem made loud lamentation over their fallen brother. And well might they also have grieved for another reason. Because the killing of Stephen marked a new era in the church at Jerusalem. The opposition and the persecution would now no longer be sporadic. It would no longer be fixed only on the apostles. It would no longer be relatively minor. Now one of their own had shed his blood for the faith. And on that day, verse 1, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. The whole church. On that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. And of course, it's interesting to note right off the bat who seems to be the primary instigator in that persecution. Namely, this young man named Saul that we read about in chapter 7. He had stood there in verse 58 watching as Stephen was stoned to death, looking after the perpetrator's cloaks. And we read in verse 1 of chapter 8, he was in hearty agreement with the murder. But now in verse 3, Paul becomes a definite ringleader. Saul becomes a definite ringleader among those 
who were making life hard for the Christians. Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. And it's just interesting to note Saul's involvement at this point because he is soon to become the main protagonist of the book of Acts. I said protagonist, not antagonist, purposefully. Now, from the looks of verse 3, we might expect the opposite. From the looks of verse 3, we might anticipate that Luke, here in classic literary style, is now introducing us to the villain of the story, to a man who, like Inspector Javert, will continue to rear his ugly head again and again in the pages in front of us and make life miserable for the heroes of the story. But it's actually the opposite, as we'll see. Saul himself is going to become the hero. He's going to become the greatest preacher aside from the Lord Jesus that the church has ever known. And his missionary journeys proclaiming all across the Mediterranean basin, this same Jesus for whom Stephen was stoned, those journeys will turn into the main storyline in this book of Acts. And yet here we find him dragging away to prison those men and women who would soon be his brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. It doesn't seem possible, does it? But nothing will be impossible with God. God is all-powerful. God is sovereign in salvation. And as King Nebuchadnezzar found out, no one can ward off his hand. Not a cruel, arrogant, hard-hearted, well-placed young man like Saul even. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, declares the Lord. And Saul, praise God, will soon find that out and even begin teaching it to others. But for now, he is ravaging the church. For now he is entering house after house and dragging off men and women. For now he is locking the Christians up behind bars. And I just want you to put yourself in this scene in Jerusalem for a moment or two if you can. Just picture it. A young family has just sat down on the floor and sidled up to their low dining table. And the father, head bowed, is giving thanks for the bread on the table giving thanks for the daily bread that's reflected in all sorts of mercies that God has granted on that day, and especially giving thanks for Jesus, who is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. But then suddenly, into the midst of that peaceful scene comes a loud banging at the door. Husband and wife exchange glances at one another, unsure of what to do. Children get up from their seats and begin clinging to Papa's legs, frightened, and the pounding comes again. And slowly the father opens the door, and there on the other side of the door is a brash, angry young man and a gathering of his henchmen with torches and clubs. And within the span of just a few gasps of breath, wife and children are left there wailing and begging and praying, and the door slams shut again, and there they sit alone on the floor. In some homes, even verse 3 tells us, Saul will cart the women away as well as the men. And the danger becomes so real and so persistent in the city that many families and individuals determine that they aren't going to wait around for the hammering to come to their doors, but instead they'll scatter to the winds and try to start life over in the various towns and hamlets round about. Verse 1, they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now we may be tempted to read a sentence like that all too quickly. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea 
and Samaria. But I tell you, for those who were scattered, it was surely no light, easy thing. Just wasn't just moving from one city to another. They were fleeing from their homes in danger and perhaps having to leave much of their property behind. Many of them would have also probably had to leave their livelihoods behind as well. Maybe you can picture a blacksmith shop left empty because its owner has fled the city. Many farming interests, fields and animals perhaps also had to be abandoned in the night. And those who worked in the merchant trades went on their way perhaps wondering if they'll ever find a job if the market will be suitable in the smaller towns round about. We're not told for sure what the various hardships would have been, but rest assured it wasn't as simple as you and I moving from Cincinnati to Cleveland. Though these scattered ones escaped, thank God, with their freedom and with their lives, many of them lost a great deal in the process, surely. It's difficult for us to imagine being driven from our homes and leaving our possessions and our livelihoods behind and perhaps some of our family as well. But it's not an uncommon thing, even in the recent history of our world. This came home to me a couple of years ago when I had opportunity to visit for the first time my father's hometown in what was once communist East Germany. While we were there, he reminded us of all sorts of happy things that he remembered from his childhood. But he also reminisced on some of the sad events that befell the people there, first under the Nazis and then under communism. And one of the stories that he told us, I hope I'll never forget. We were standing outside of this great building that now sits empty and tattered. But that was when my father was a boy, uh, the home of a successful family-owned toy factory run by a father and his daughter-in-law. But as the gray smog of communism set further and further in on that town, the appeal of scattering like the people in Acts 8 became greater and greater until that woman who helped run that family toy factory and whose life and livelihood had been so tied up in that town and that factory decided that she had to get out. And so she left the office, my father told us, one, I think it was a Friday afternoon, not able to share her plans with her friends or co-workers, I assume for fear of being caught trying to leave. And she scattered across the border that weekend, leaving most everything behind and was only discovered missing when she never showed up for work on the following Monday. That story has stuck with me since that day. It wasn't a miracle, sort of made-for-TV romantic escape from the clutches of tyranny like the Von Trapp family over the mountains of Austria, but neither was it a matter of just moving to another city. She couldn't take a U-Haul with her. She couldn't have a going-away party at the office. She couldn't even tell her friends that she was leaving. No goodbye. She left everything behind, nearly everything anyway, loved ones, her livelihood, her living room suit, and so on. And so I imagine it must have been for many of these Christians in Acts 8, scattered from their homes and therefore bereft of much of their earthly all simply because of their faith in Jesus. And as we look in their faces this morning, morning, men and women lying in their prison cells or little families closing the door for the last time on their humble homes, leaving town with only what they can fit in an ox cart. As we picture them in our mind's eye this morning, I just want to make three applications from this suffering. First of all, 
I want you to remember how many of our brothers and sisters are living these nightmares even today. There are men and women even today who are being dragged from their homes or dragged from their worship gatherings on this Lord's Day, perhaps, and thrown into prison by so many cruel Saul's. Some of them have African faces, some of them East Asian faces. Some of them are from the Indian subcontinent, others from the Middle East. But they're all our brothers and sisters in Christ, aren't they? And though we may have never seen them, and though we may never see them this side of the celestial city, though we may find it very difficult to identify with their sorrows, we ought to remember them. As we've said before, remember the prisoners, Hebrews 13.3. Remember, too, the refugees, the scattered ones, and the empty homes and shops and fields that they left behind. And remember the wives and children of men like Stephen, whose lives are forfeited simply because they did what we're doing this morning. They worshiped the Lord Jesus. Pray that God would be a husband and a father to those who are left behind. And don't just pray and remember, but partner with groups like the Voice of the Martyrs who exist to defend and support and encourage and pray for the persecuted church. Find them on the web and help them. Remember how many of our brothers and sisters are living these nightmares today and pray for them and help them. And then also, I want you to recognize in this story, in these events, how quickly things can change. How quickly things can change. I was listening a few days ago to a sermon by a guy named Kenneth Stewart in Glasgow, Scotland, on the faith of Moses' parents from Hebrews 11 as they hid their little boy in a day of persecution. And this is one of the things he pointed out from the story, the accounts of the Exodus, how quickly things can change in a culture. Because there was a time when the Hebrews enjoyed a favored and privileged position in Egypt, wasn't there? Because of Joseph's service in the palace of Pharaoh, his family was favored. But then, as we read on Wednesday night, there arose another king over Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph. And Joseph's family went from being favored and privileged to being enslaved and mistreated and eventually marked out for partial genocide as their baby boys were tossed into the Nile. How quickly things can change. And we see it here in the book of Acts as well. One day the church is growing and prospering in Jerusalem, albeit with some minor persecutions here and there, but growing just the same and doing so with great joy. But then Stephen falls foul of some of the townspeople and they drag him to trial and in a fit of rage they stone him. And before you know it, the whole city is in an uproar and the greater part of the church has to flee And the once mighty church in Jerusalem, the greatest church perhaps that ever existed, is scattered to the wind. How quickly things can change. And if they can change that quickly in Jerusalem, there's nothing that says that they can't change in a hurry even here. Now it's true in our country that Christians do have some occasional difficulties because of their faith. One thinks, for instance, of the recent conundrum that's come on the Christian owners of Hobby Lobby. But for the most part, we're free to do what we please. We are practicing our faith this morning as we like, and we're thankful for government provisions that allow us to do that. But there's no guarantee that that will last forever, or even that it will last to the end of this decade, 
I'm certainly not proclaiming that it won't. I'm simply saying that all it takes is one Stephen-like incident, one upheaval that could turn the heat of the furnace up sevenfold upon us. And we must be ready. We must be ready, first of all, with passages like Psalm 46, which we read. We must be able to say to ourselves, when things change quickly, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth should change, and though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea. We must be ready with a heart of faith in the Lord, who always defends and cares for his own. And we must be ready to quote Kenneth Stewart in Glasgow to pray. This is what he said about how things can change quickly and how we should pray. Pray, friends. You who know how to pray, you who know how the Lord hears and answers prayers, pray that God would yet be merciful to us as a nation. So I want you to remember how many of our brothers and sisters are suffering today, and I want you to remember how quickly things can change and to be ready with faith, Psalm 46 kind of faith, and with prayer. But then in the third place, and I think most importantly of all, we need to notice how the Jerusalem church responded to this persecution how the Jerusalem church responded. This is the most amazing thing, the most delightful thing about this passage, and we find it in verse 4. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Isn't that fantastic? Just like the apostles in chapter 4, they said, in effect, we cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. This gospel, this news that God's own Son has come into the world and has taken on flesh and walked among us and has taken on the punishment for our sins upon Himself and has died the death that we deserve in our place for our sins and has risen again and ascended to the right hand of God, that news was too good for them to swallow back, even if they found themselves in trouble because of it. And so they said to themselves, if we can't stay in Jerusalem, we'll just take the gospel with us when we move out to the villages and towns round about. And I find that amazing. And praiseworthy, and I find it challenging. Because if we were all driven out of Cincinnati this week, all of a sudden and unexpectedly because of our faith in Jesus, wouldn't you just be tempted to lay low for a while? Wouldn't you just be tempted to head to Columbus or Louisville or Lexington or wherever it may be and just lick your wounds for a while and keep quiet and recover from the shock a little bit and just maintain a low profile and keep your faith to yourself and worship God just behind closed doors in your home and try to avoid any more trouble? Isn't that what you'd be tempted to do? That's what I'd be tempted to do. I don't want any more trouble from my family, I think I'd say to myself. So let's just practice our faith at home. Let's just try to settle into this new town and let's just make sure we don't end up like Stephen. But that's emphatically not what we read in verse 4, is it? No. Those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Doesn't that challenge you? These are the same people who have just given up their homes 
and many of them probably their livelihoods as well, simply because they were Christians. And one of their deacons has just been crushed to death with stones because of his faith, and yet they are still out preaching the word. And yet I, who have never lost anything significant because of my faith in Jesus, am so often timid outside the four walls of this building. And so, I would imagine, are some of you. Now, do we all have to go and stand on the streets of Cincinnati proclaiming Christ through a megaphone? I don't know that that's what Acts 8.4 is describing. They're preaching the word may have had a lot more to do with these displaced Christians sharing Christ with their new neighbors and co-workers, setting up house churches in the new cities to which they moved, and perhaps, like Paul, looking for opportunities to speak for Jesus in the synagogues where they settled. But however exactly they preached the word, they did it. Those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And I want you to notice, before we finish, where they went about preaching the word. All verse 4 tells us, of course, is that wherever they were scattered, they went about preaching the word. But if we look back at verse 1 again, we will see the precise location of their scattering, namely, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. That's where they were scattered, and therefore that's where they went about preaching the word, throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Judea and Samaria. Where else have you heard those words juxtaposed like that? Back in Acts 1.8, right? Jesus said to his followers, You shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now, do you see what's happening here in Acts 8? God's plan is unfolding just as Jesus said it would. For seven chapters, the apostles and the others have faithfully been Christ's witnesses in Jerusalem, as he said. And now in God's providence, the good news is moving outside the city limits into the very regions that Jesus said that it would move. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria. And now it's happening just according to plan. And I find that really encouraging. God will accomplish his plans. No matter what is going on in our lives, no matter how much things seem to be wrecked, God will accomplish his plans just as he has announced them. And all of Satan's efforts through people like Saul and the Jewish council to derail God's plans will not thwart the going forth of the gospel. In fact, strange as it may sound, here is a case in which Satan's cruel designs against God's people, Saul's cruel designs against God's people, actually got the gospel out faster than if they just left them alone. Had the church in Jerusalem been left alone and continued to prosper unhindered, they might have continued to focus their labors in that city for some time longer. After all, the fields were so ripe, the work was so successful. But Satan and his minions step in here and try to wreck the whole thing through the stoning of Stephen and the scattering of the church. And yet, instead of wrecking the gospel ship, what they actually did was simply to push it further out into missionary waters to scatter the seeds of the gospel in every direction. You picture a cruel bully 
strolling up to your children at your Labor Day picnic in a few weeks and taking a baseball bat to the watermelon that they've been waiting to devour and then running away laughing at how he has destroyed their dessert. And for a time, he has. But next year, the whole garden will be full of watermelons, won't it? Because in trying to destroy it, he has actually just scattered the seeds all over the place. And that's what's happening in Acts 8 when Satan takes a whip to God's people. Unwittingly, he is actually just spreading the gospel seed all the more broadly. And all the while, as that happens, God does not flinch. Because everything is going just according to the plan that he has laid down. His followers have filled Jerusalem with the gospel. And now they are sowing the good seed in all Judea and Samaria as well. Just like Jesus said. Don't you love the sovereignty of God? Saul and Satan and others meant evil against God's people. But God meant it for good. And you know... The same will be true in your life if you love God, Romans 8, 28. If you are called according to his purpose, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, what Satan or others mean for evil, God is designing for your good. Maybe sometimes in your life, too, so that you might spread the good seed of the gospel even further than you'd originally planned. Maybe you end up in a hospital because someone... Satan or some human has evil designs against you. But that hospital bed becomes a pulpit from which the love of Christ is proclaimed to nurses and doctors and care assistants and social workers whom you'd never otherwise have met. Or maybe you lose a loved one and the same thing happens in hospice and in the funeral home and at the graveside. Or maybe you lose your job and you have to relocate to another city in which you know no one, but could it be that God is going to place you next to a coworker or next to a neighbor who desperately needs Jesus and will make you the means of preaching the word to them? God knows what he's doing, doesn't he? And if he was in control when the Jerusalem church was scattered, and if they landed in precisely the Judean and Samarian soil that God had always intended for them to cultivate, then so will you, if you love God and are called according to his purpose. Chapter 8 marks a new era in the book of Acts. Thus far, the gospel action has centered on the city of Jerusalem. But now, exactly according to the blueprints laid down back in chapter 1, the gospel circle is going to begin to widen taking in Judea and Samaria, as we'll see in more detail in the days ahead, and eventually moving even further afield through the ministry of this very Saul and others and beginning to stretch even to the remotest part of the earth, just like Jesus said. And you know, if things went exactly according to Jesus' plan in the book of Acts, If the gospel advanced, just like he said in the book of Acts, there should be no doubt in our minds that it will continue to do so today until we have finally reached the remotest part of the earth with the gospel and until men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation worship at the Savior's feet as the book says they will. 
Isaac Watts was right. Jesus shall reign. Where'er the sun does its successive journeys run, his kingdom spread from shore to shore till moon shall wax and wane no more. People and realms of every tongue dwell on his love with sweetest song. His name like sweet perfume shall rise with every morning sacrifice. And that great promise, that great guarantee, as we find it spelled out, not only in Watts' great paraphrase of Psalm 72, but in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, that great promise and guarantee should give us every incentive, wherever the providence of God may scatter us, to go about preaching the word.